The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. kids boo it's time for another stellar episode of dotnet rocks the internet audio talk show for dotnet developers with carl franklin and richard campbell this is lawrence ryan announcing show number 529 with guest orin eni recorded live wednesday february 24th 2010 dotnet rocks is brought to you by franklin's net training developers to work smarter and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who still suffers from an old poker injury got hit in the head with a whiskey bottle. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to Donnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. Got another story for you. Okay, hit me. <laughs> so a programmer finds himself in front of a committee that decides whether he should go to heaven or hell. The committee tells the programmer he has a say in the matter and asks him if he wants to see either heaven or hell before stating his preference. The guy says, sure. Programmer, I have a pretty good idea what heaven is like, so let's see hell. So an angel takes the programmer to a sunny beach full of beautiful women in skimpy bikinis playing volleyball, listening to music and having a great time. Wow, he says, hell looks great. I'll take hell. Instantly, the programmer finds himself in a red-hot lava with demons tearing at his flesh. Where's the beach, the music, the women? He screams frantically to the angel. Angel says, ah, oh, that was the demo. <laughs> that was just yeah. the demo. Just a demo. Yeah, okay. Let's get into Better No Framework on that note. All right. Please, no Helen. Better No Framework. Make it happy. Okay, just for you. Okay. So... You know, I've been uh, talking about deprecated and uh, obsolete types in .NET 4. This one's pretty simple. It's the only one in system.core.dll, system.runtime.compilerservices.executionscope. Huh. Do not use this type. <laughs> Don't do it. So this, when it was usable, represents the runtime state of a dynamically generated method. Right. So it is now deprecated. So the remarks say the execution scope type is used by the expression tree compiler, which is an internal component of the link expression tree API and by the dynamic methods that it generates. So not something that you'd probably use anyway. There it is. Little 
less fanfare than usual, but yeah. What? Uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Well, I got an interesting email. Let me read it to you. See what you think. All right. Hey guys, can I get one of those mugs? Love the show. That does not deserve a mug. This is what I'm saying. I mean, Come on, I, yeah. try a little harder, people. You got to try a little harder, just a little bit. Just you know, write us something. Okay, I appreciate love the show, but you didn't even put a period on it. <laughs> Come on, really? A question, a concern. You know, we've had guys who send us, pointing us to great code examples or ideas or show something. Send us something. We'll it, send you a mug. That reminds me. That reminds me of something that happened to me the other day. So I'm in the studio. I'm working, and all of a sudden, I, you know, well, I had, I had seen this, got this Facebook invitation to, for this guy to be my Facebook friend. He wanted to be my Facebook friend. Okay. And he was from India, and I don't have a lot of personal close friends in India, so I figured. He must be a fan of the show because we do have a lot of listeners there. Sure. So I add him to my, you know, my network or whatever. And then not five seconds later, I hear chat pops up and it says, hi, thank you very much. Uh, And I said, are you a fan of the show? And then I hear what show? I'm like, what? Who is this? (laughs) (laughs) Just some random guy, you know. Just wanted to be your friend, man. Yeah. What show? There you go. (laughs) I I like that little reality check. We're famous in a very small area. Well, yeah. Well, all over the world, but a very small slice of people. That's right. It's true. Richard, our guest today is uh, none other than Oren Eni, otherwise known as Allende Rahin. He's working for Hibernating Rhinos Limited, an Israeli-based company producing developer productivity tools for OLTP applications, such as nHibernate Profiler, Link to SQL Profiler, Entity Framework Profiler, and more. Oren's main focus is on architecture and best practices that promote quality software and zero-friction development. Get out your 3-in-1 oil. Oren is the author of Rhino Mox, one of the most what? Bill Cosby, you know that? Well, we're in Harold. Whips out his trusty can of 3-in-1 oil. All right. Oren is the author of Rhino Mox, one of the most popular mocking frameworks on the .NET platform, and is also a leading figure in other well-known open source projects, including the Castle Project and N-Hibernate. An internationally known presenter, Oren has spoken at conferences such as DevTeach, JAOO, Ordev, NDC, and Progressive.net, and is the author of the book, DSLs in Boo, Domain-Specific Languages in .NET, published by Manning. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dude, we- rhinos don't hibernate. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> the funny part is that try to explain how you spell that in, in, in Hebrew. Oh, yeah. I bet that's a trick. Uh, yeah. Um, What's the Hebrew word for hibernate? Yeah. So the problem is that uh, I, I take him to literally take a card with the name of the company. Just I don't say it anymore. Just hear him write it down. Just hand yeah. it to them. Yeah. I, uh, the fun, I, it was a fun name to choose, but uh, I'm thinking that next time it's one, two, three, four. I couldn't even order coffee in Hebrew. <laughs> I thought it was a cafe. Yeah. I don't yeah. think coffee is kosher anyway. No, uh, no it does. 
Uh, <laughs> actually, depending on uh, what on the brand. type of coffee and how it yeah. was prepared and a whole bunch of other boring stuff. <laughs> so before we started recording, mm-hmm. you said, I was bored today and I wrote a DSL uh, or something like that. Yeah, I, I wasn't bored. We actually... So we had a problem that we needed to pass some data f- uh, from uh, uh, the browser to the backend, and we had a choice of writing a JSON, serializing uh, that JSON, or write our own language to do so. Right. And uh, we decided that <laughs> it's actually easier to write our own language than handle the GS- JSON serialization stuff. Nice. Mm-hmm. You wrote a DSL. Yeah. And so, what it, were the words in this DSL? What are the verbs? Uh, English. Basically, um, what we needed to do, this is a search screen. Right. So, you can do a whole bunch of complex stuff, but we also built a, d- a database today. So, uh, we needed some way of expressing queries in a way that would make sense to the user. Right. Basically, do you remember what SQL was supposed to do? Yeah, it was, it was supposed to make it easy to, to uh, get at your data back for the old yeah. days when it was hard to get your data. Doesn't it do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the problem with uh, giving a business user SQL is that, A, it works, B, they will use that. Right. And they will do things like like on a, on the description uh, column, which is N voucher max. Right. At which point you have to stop the, the DBA from getting a knife and going after them. Yes. I would like to take over an entire core and most of your drive stack while we thumb through the whole database in sequence. <laughs> Wait, run two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, another thing that uh, was a problem. Think about the standard uh, database. It has dozens of tables and all sorts of interesting relationships. So if you take the standard online shop uh, thingy, I want to, uh, the user wants to be able to do the stuff like, okay, I have a, all the orders contain this book, or uh, let's say, uh, books about DSL. This is my filter, and I want to apply it to all customers. Right. Wait, if this is customer, then I want to get all the, ca- all the customer, whoever, ord- whoever had an order where the order line has a product where the product has a name co- that includes the word DSL. Okay. Or the same filter you want to you want to apply it to orders, or you want to apply it to a shipped item. So also all sorts of stuff like that, where you can uh, start slicing slicing the data in very interesting ways. The problem is that uh, trying to do that on a OLTP server is going to kill you. And trying to give the user the same flexibility using something like OLAP is probably harder, and they don't want to install an OLAP server because they run on a SQL server in Oracle, and then it gets complex though. Right, it's a whole mm. other set of tooling. Mm. Like, it's a big commitment to go down the OLAP server route. Yeah. So what we actually did was um, uh, we used Lucene. We, Lucene is a full-text search uh, engine that comes right. with a single uh, DLL. So to index the data, and then we built a query language that basically allows you to do things like uh, book auto is uh, Allende and shipped at uh, and shipped yesterday mm. and stuff like that. And then we took it in and translated that into a series of fairly simple Lucene query that fed off each other 
And that gave us the ability to perform basically any query that we wanted uh, on top of every single entity in the database hmm. in minuscule amount of time. I'm talking about, uh, we didn't do optimization yet, talk about four milliseconds to uh, do most queries. Wow. Because yeah. you're really just reaming through memory now. Um, pretty much. Uh, it's not actually in memory, it's saved to a, a file, but we basically think about created a, a materials view for right. everything and then have the ability to make very interesting queries on top of that. Uh, actually, uh, another interesting thing is that if you wanted to do that using views, it would be extremely hard to do because uh, views has fixed schema. Yes. And with something like Lucene, I don't have fixed schema, so I can do something like, okay, uh, I have a field called category underscore DSL. This is a field on some of my entities. Right. So now I can do a search for, okay, give me all the, give me all the, give me all the, uh, books that, uh, in the DSL category with this value in the as the value of this field. So this is a three or four level joins using SQL. And it's a single very simple query using uh using Lucene where the where the structure of the uh, documents that we store is basically part of the data. Right. And it's different for every uh, document. So it was really fun. So the real power is in the full text search of power of Lucene and you basically just wrote a, a DSL to make that easier? Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. So the DSL was just uh, uh, the icing on the cake yeah. because that, that, that's what gave us the ability to write English uh, sentences Right. that just... You know what? No, it's not, it's not really that because uh, the Lucene model is a non-relational one. So you can no. only make a, a, a queries on what a single document does. What okay. uh, we needed to do is to be able to do what amounts to joint on an relational database. Yeah. So um, what the data that, that we wrote is basically, okay, let's take uh, this query and let's translate that into a series of queries that run through a pipeline that basically does all the joining in the, in the merging of the results that we need. Yeah, yeah. nice. Mm -hmm. Are the users actually writing these uh, statements now in the DSL or the developers? Um, that's actually a very interesting problem when you talk about, oh, I, want, I have a DSL. Okay, right. so who is going to write it? Yes. yes. And I tend to take the position that whenever you have a DSL, users should be able to read it. It's nice to have if they can also write it, but it's not mandatory. It's not a, and it's not necessarily a desirable, a, a desirable property that you should strive for. Mostly because, well, users don't really understand um, things like syntax or um, uh, syntax cells. Uh, they just, if you just write uh, an English statement, well, sometimes it will work because it just happened to be the, in the right syntax, sometimes it will not. It will not. And trying to do natural uh, language parsing is very hard. So when you build DSL, you tend to try to get into something that is meaningful for the user. It's not necessarily English. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that resembles a center structure. 
but it makes uh, make it easy to look at what you're what you're doing, right? And immediately figure out what's going on. So we haven't even talked about how you did this. Did you use Oslo? Oh no, 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 no. That's entirely uh, too hard to do. Uh, just to give you an idea. Uh, we started doing that at, I think, 11 a.m. today, and we finish in 7.30 p.m. Okay. So that includes building the, the uh, Lucene, index, Lucene Indexer and Database, uh, building the uh, language itself, and building the backend that takes the language and translates that into Lucene queries. So you just wrote a little parser yourself in C-sharp? No, no. That would be even harder. So... What I did, I used Boo. Boo is a, okay. Boo is a CLR language. And it has some really interesting properties uh, in its implementation. It's an open source language, but the compiler that uh, implements the Boo language is an open compiler. That means that during the compilation process, the compiler will call to your code and ask you, hey, uh, I see something that I don't really understand here. Would you like to take uh, to take a chance in uh, fix it to something that I can understand? So something very common when you build a DSL on Boo is uh, to add a keyword or to add uh, some sort of convention to the language. Um, I think that uh, C Sharp Five is supposed maybe to have that, and it's called compiler as a service. Well, well. The compiler itself is uh, available to you during compilation to make modifications. Cool. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So the fun part about that is that because uh, Boo makes it so easy, then the cost of creating a new language is literally minuscule. Just, okay, as long as you fit in more in a very wide, uh, very acceptable uh, syntax, then you can just bang up your language in a matter of uh, hours. I routinely write languages on stage in 10, 15 minutes just from start to finish because it's that easy. Hmm. Cool. Why do they call it a wrist-friendly language for the CLI? Because it attempts to avoid the shift key, mostly. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So a lot of the, in many languages you see a lot of symbols. F-sharp is the worst, I think. F-sharp, if you Press the shift key and just bang on the keyboard, you get valid code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just turn on the caps lock, baby. <laughs> uh. Uh, so, instead, uh, Boo makes uh, a lot more use of things like uh, uh, keywords. So, if in uh, C sharp you use um, end end, uh, I don't know how to call the symbol actually. The shift eight. Oh, ampersand. Ampersand. Yeah, ampersand. Yeah, shift ampersand, seven. Ampersand. Shift seven. And um, so in C sharp, use the ampersand ampersand for end. Right. And in Boo, it's just end. The, the keyword end itself, or, or or not. So it's very it's very uh, it's legal in uh, Boo to say user is not logged on. Or stuff like that. And because right. this is legal, because this is the default uh, that the parser accepts, you can just take that uh, input in as the parse tree and then start working on that without having to start from scratch and deal with a, a defining a grammar, defining a language. Carl, you mentioned also before, and 
The problem with Oslo is that it's, it solved the, in, the entirely the own problem. Hmm. When you build a DSL, uh, the time that you spend on the grammar, it tends to be very, uh, very small. Hmm. Because going from, oh, I have some text and I, uh, uh, to have the parse tree, the, uh, it's also called AST or abstract syntax tree, hmm. is there are plenty of tools out there. I will, hands out admit that, uh, also probably has the best tooling available for a DSL in .NET framework. But, uh, if you do, if you look at a parser generator from Antler to Goldtree to, uh, there's parts of them that I cannot recall at the moment. They all, they all have good tools and debugger and stuff like that. This is just not the hard problem. Mm-hmm. The hard problem starts when, okay, now I have the parse tree. What am I going to do with that? Right, right. So imagine that instead of uh, having some free text that you can parse using some sort of parser generator, I'm giving you some batch of XML. So the the parser is given to you. You already have that. But uh, moving from, oh, I have the uh, uh, DOM in memory to doing something useful with that, especially if you want to do stuff like executing a code or making decisions based on that, this is very hard. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I uh, tend to do, Boo uh, is a CLR language that's compiled down to IL. Yeah. So from performance perspective, it has the same performance characteristic as uh, C Sharp. Right. But it, it's derived from Python, right? Yes. Yeah. So it has Python syntax. It's um, I can't really describe the syntax on over the phone. Yeah. But well, yeah. It, it's, it's sort of Python with dynamic, uh, with, with C-sharp-like features. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but uh, actually, it's not dynamic. That's the fun part. Vu uh, has a very strong... Uh, yeah, stati- it is statically typed, yeah. Yeah, but it, it has very strong type in, uh, inferencing capabilities, which means that usually you don't really have to think about types at all, because right. the compiler will just figure it out for you. Sort of like C-sharp 4. Um... Not quite, because um, sort of like everything by default is a val. Right. And you can specify what the type is if you really want, but by default, if you just make everything, uh, by default, the compiler assumes that uh, um, everything is a val, and then you can, uh, and then it sets the type automatically based on the uh, assignment, uh, based, based on the right hand of the assignment. I like in the Boo manifesto. Yeah. He says, yes. the guys who came up with public static void main were probably kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that most people didn't get it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a lot of ceremony involving most languages. Right. Like, that's, that's a good just one for it. Do. Yeah. I mean, t- just think about how much stuff do you have to do to write Hello World in most languages? So, in in Boo, it would be print hello world. That's it. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. If you're developing a new line of business application, then you probably tried the latest Silverlight version. Now you can achieve even greater results by combining the functionalities of Silverlight 4 beta with the richness of third-party controls. Our friends at Telerik are the first vendors to offer native support for Silverlight 4 Beta in their RAD Controls for Silverlight 4 CTP suite. The Telerik controls let you tap into the framework's great potential, like the native right mouse click and more. Be sure that all 38 controls benefit from the latest and greatest in Silverlight 4, so you can start building compelling applications right away.
Check out the product at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. This is really, really ironic because mm-hmm. all of the great features that the that the C class of programmers are touting about these new languages, we've been doing it since Quick Basic, man. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, we've we've crept towards making the language simpler and more dynamic. Uh, you know, the problem was mm-hmm. never the language. It was the underlying, the lack of underlying structure. Um. Yes, no. The, if you look, uh, if you, I think that if you look at that in context, you will see that uh, there, there is some hubris uh, uh, about, oh, I can program in C++, therefore I must be a genius, and you program in VB, and you may finish your application in six days or six months, but I can do memory allocation all day long. I don't know yeah. what it goes there. Yeah, yeah. So well, you know, it's the, it's the trade-off between learning uh, a productive language and not needing to know what's under the hood, and then you hit a wall, and yeah, there you are done. with your wall, yeah. and now you're you're done. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pro- no, the problem actually with a language that has this wall is that this is where you stop. You literally cannot escape that. Right. If you if you look at a lot of the uh, languages that, that you uh, that. You correctly point out they are coming back to the same. Uh, let's just write it out. They right. don't have this wall. You can start small, and right. so in Python, in Boo, in lots of these languages, uh, you can just write a script and it just almost looks like a shell script. Just bunch of code on the screen, yeah. and then you can start. Okay, now we, now I need to refactor that. So classes, methods, uh, oh, oh, it's very easy to go from. Uh, Totally unstructured to very uh, uh, rigidly structured, and anyway in between, without hitting uh, this whole Oh no, that that you cannot do. Yeah. And if you think about it, think about stuff like Foxball. How many people are still, even today, are saying that Foxball is the best best language to, for a certain class of problems? Mm. Because it's this is what it's designed for. This is what it does. Really, really well. This is why uh, I think that a uh, domain uh, specific languages that yeah. I'm going to build your language to solve one specific problem and only does that, it does not do anything else, is something that has a, a lot of value the moment that you have something that you need to do more than once. Right. And, in, and you need to make sure that this, uh, that over time, this remains a, a clear and maintainable. So, one case that I had was that a, um, a code generation. So the, a company that that sells custom systems. So you may want to buy a, a system that has three models, but each model has their own requirements and their own licensing stuff and whatever. And they had fifteen thousand different components that you had to manage somehow. And they literally could not manage their own requirements, their own, uh, what do we need? What, uh, because it's gotten to be so complex. So yeah. they basically drop it down to, I think maybe 15 or 20 different modules. Each of them contain a lot of uh, smaller components just because of the inability to manage everything together. So getting back to DSLs, do you have mm-hmm. sample code on your blog or on your website of 
how to do a DSL in Boo? Oh, a lot. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Probably the most common example is the one to do the rule engines. So in my in my uh, blog, com slash blog, there is a category called domain-specific languages. And that has a lot of information about uh, about that. Not only about uh, the building of the languages, but, uh, okay, what are, what are the other concerns that you need to take into account when you build a language? Such as, who is going to be writing that? Who is going to read that? What are the tooling support that you need to provide? Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Mm-hmm. Some good stuff. And yeah. you, you've written this book, um, DSLs in Boo, Domain Specific Languages in .NET. Is that, uh, is that an e-book or is it a book book? Or? Uh, it's a book by Manning, so you can get the hardcover or the, not hardcover, the printed version mm-hmm. or the e-book or both if you want. Cool. And yeah. What's with the uh, pilgrim? What is what with what? What's with the pilgrim on the cover? Uh, I don't know. This is uh, Manning Tingi. They they bought some book of painting some from the 17th century, and most of the books have some of those paintings on the cover. Oh, it's not a pilgrim. It looks like a. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I, I it's actually, Dutch. when I cho- yeah, it's I think it's Dutch and. Uh, when I when I picked that picture, I thought, "Oh, this is someone who is going to walk. He's going <laughs> to do something useful." Yes, yeah, he's carrying what looks like a rifle case and a box <laughs> and, a, and an artist's paint box. Yeah, I, I, I would like. I think I like the artist version better than the gun case. But I digress. Let's call it a paint box and an easel. Yeah, maybe it is an easel. Yeah, <laughs> he's off to make some art. Here, he's yeah. going to shoot turkeys. One or the other. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry. When I'm when I'm hitting gun, I don't think turkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to take us off of DSLs because I think it's a cool topic. But mm-hmm. uh, I I was also there. Where were we? Was it Ordev while you were working on the Entity Framework Profiler? That was that was Ordev in the yeah. bishop's <laughs> yeah. ear. Well, we um, were drinking scotch, and you were writing code. Yeah, no, I was drinking. <laughs> I was drinking some, I think I drank, I started with Guinness, I remember that. After that, <laughs> it all became blurry. And that's why the, uh, you know, enough Guinness in him, and the N-Hibernate guy starts writing an EF profiler. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> hey, the first version was pink, do you know that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I believe yeah. that was the night that uh, that we were all singing songs, and and a uh, big crowd was gathered around. We we're having yeah. a good old time. Oh, and then yeah. I look over and Oren and Julie Lerman, Julie. you know, their yeah. hands are flailing in the air frantically. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually a lot of fun. And See, this is what to. you get when you go to a conference with us, people. Right. Mm-hmm. You get to come out, you go to the bar, and you sit around and watch Oren Code in Carl play guitar. <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not sure... Uh, how much entertainment value you can get from watching me code? Uh, you'd be surprised. It was impressive, man. Let's just talk a little bit about this profiler. So you just essentially showing the queries that EF is generating? Uh, that's the very basic level, yeah. Right. So the major problem started with Enhibernet about two years ago. Mm-hmm. We, I was working at a client, and we kept having to go to SQL Profiler to look at things. Right. And the UI that it gave us there was just horrible. 
just flat list of all the queries that are going in, including queries from all sorts of other resources like reporting services, which I wanted to keep because it kept throwing queries into the mix and I have to stop and roll and find stuff. And when you actually go to the actual query, then uh, it shows us in a weird way inside a XX SQL um, store procedure or something like that. Yeah. And the formatting is horrible and you can't really copy that and execute that immediately on a management studio. So at some point I just said, okay, enough. I know how in Hubble it works, but we just write something that would look better. So what he does right now, and he does it for uh, in Hibernate, uh, Entity Framework, Link to SQL, and Hibernate on Java, which was fun. Each of those has some concept of a, a context or a session. Yeah. So you track the session, and inside each session, you see a list of all the statement that the session is that the session or the context has made, and you see them uh, uh, pretty formatted in a. Uh, with proper uh, syntax coloring and everything. So just from the point of view of actually tracking down what you're, uh, what you're doing, this is so much, so much more convenient. Right. And after I did that, I started thinking, okay, well, what are, the, what are the other things that I can do? So something that drove me mad uh, in many cases was, okay, here's this query in the database. What piece of code generated this query? Because I know this cannot be happening. <laughs> this query cannot exist. This I've is seen not. It. <laughs> it cannot <laughs> exist. <laughs> Nobody would write a query this stupid. Yeah, not not even this stupid. Like in this code path, no one should be calling this query. This is something that is in completely different place. Right. So um, what ended up happening is that oh, I I I can get into the stack trace where uh, where the query was generated. Ah. So I can literally give you, okay, this query was generated by this code, and you can double-click that, and I will take you to the exact line where uh, this code was generated. Nice. And when you start talking about modern ORMs where uh, they use lazy loading, they use proxies, they use a lot of stuff to make it uh, to make it transparent to the user what's actually going on. Right. Then it turns out that it's actually how to figure out what's going on. Yeah, you don't. I, we've now made it transparent. So transparent, you can't see what's going on anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, so being able to oh, this you access this property, and this is a collection that hasn't been loaded. So, uh, this line causes uh, uh, causes this query. This is very useful. Right. Yeah. That's and, it's really a different mindset on profiling. Profiling like SQL profiler was built for database guys. Yes. You want to analyze the queries as a whole. Actually looking at them in the context of the app generating them, that's a whole other mindset because, you know, nobody thought about that when they wrote profile, SQL Profiler. They mm-hmm. presumed it was just a stupid developer who wrote them. Who knew it was stupid pieces of code that was writing them? Stupid code. Uh, yeah. I told, I mean, how dare it do what they told it to do? Yeah. I wanted to do what they meant. Yeah. <laughs> Never, yeah, don't do what I want what I tell you to do. Do what I want you to do. Yeah. I got children so, just like that. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> Another thing that uh, tells us that you can do, once you start talking about the context of a single application, then you can start saying things like, wait, you're making a lot of the same queries here. Right. You probably have the select and plus one issue. 
or maybe you maybe you uh, maybe you want to use patching or uh, wait a second you use this connection in another thread you probably have a cross thread issue right or whole bunch of stuff like that turn mm. out to be very useful when you can start detecting automatically and, de- and then bubbling up to the user is alerts and guidance about oh if you're using a ef and you have a select and plus one, then you need to. Then here's the things that you need to do to fix that. Right. Or if you're using Hibernate, you have things like futures or a batch rights or stuff like that, which are very useful to. Actually, most people don't know about that. That's the main issue. People get an ORM and start writing code, and that, that's the main benefit of using an ORM. We don't really need to think about that. Yeah, we and use it because the, we don't want to know what's going on in the database. Yes. Yeah. It's Except boring. that after some point, you really have to be aware about what's going on. Yeah. And you really don't want that point to be when the DBA is screaming or the database is melted. Yeah. Why have you pinned my database to the floor? What did I ever do to you? <laughs> exactly. See, I know all uh, the DBA lines, right? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Ask me how I know. It's funny because most of the time, uh, most of the time, the problem is not that the uh, developers are malicious or stupid yeah. or anything of the sort. They just they just don't they, know. They, uh, not even don't know. They don't realize that it's so easy to make a uh, when you develop on the local machine and you develop on a small data set. Right. Then it's very easy to do things like oh, let's join six, six tables and. Then just throw this thing on top of that to to avoid the cartesian product, and yeah, it works. But then you move to production, and things suddenly stop working. It really doesn't or, work. Yeah, or the most, you know, the the, the rule about um, premature optimization is the root of all evil. Yeah, yeah. So remote calls and calling to the database is a remote call is one of the things where it does not apply. The one thing that I insist on. Any application is that someone needs to watch the number of calls that you make outside of your own process for handing a request. Ideally, you would make two. One to get the data and, and the second to write the data. That's it. Right. Yeah, in the real world, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah, in the real world, you're talking about, oh, let's do 600 queries uh, just to read the data and then 1,600 queries to write the data back. Right. Ask me how I know. Ask me how I know. <laughs> now you're using Richard's lines. Uh, yeah. Um, you have to understand. Richard comes to that from the database perspective. Yes. So, okay. I come from that from, I'm the guy they call when a inhabited breaks. Yeah. I've been through all that too. You know, hey, why is our performance so bad? Oh, maybe it's because of this query with 14 joins in it. Yeah, I actually, one of the worst scenarios that I ever had was uh, some developer decided that lazy loading is bad and should be forbidden. So he disabled lazy loading, except that he still had a very richly connected model. So try to imagine what happened now. I'm, I'm loading a user. A user has groups, so we have to load all the groups. Right. Groups have users, so we have to load all the users. <laughs> so you go to load one user, and shortly after that, every user is loaded. Yeah, but that that still is a best case scenario. 
the problem that because he disabled lazy loading, then it went like that. Okay, let's load the user. Okay, let's load all the user groups. For each of the user groups, for load each all of those the users. user groups, users. Those users all have groups. Yeah, so 10,000 queries later, it turns out the application is really, really slow. Yes, and it's all in Hibernate's fault. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I actually added some code specifically to detect when you're calling the database in a loop and putting huge, big uh, uh, alert there. You're making a mistake. Please reconsider. Yeah. Please. <laughs> What you're doing right now, it's bad. It's not. It goes a little further than, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't want to you be You really doing this. don't want to do this. Trust me. <laughs> don't make me do this. So you've now built a profiler for N-Hibernate and Entity Framework. And what's the new one? Link to SQL? Yeah. Wow, you've been a busy boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Link to SQL was actually the hardest by really? far. Really? Yeah. Um, both in Hibernate and EF has some extension points. Lean to SQL has nothing. Oh, wow. I had to go in and do some very, very evil things at the CLR level to make things happen. To be able to get at it. Yeah. I'm actually very, very happy that Lean to SQL is mostly frozen because I'm pretty sure that if they sneeze at the code base, You're the profile is going to break. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in the interest of full disclosure, these are products you sell. Yes. Right. Yes, I do. They, they, this is all off your website, and these are things. They, this is how you make a living. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but there's a trial. You can try it out. I, I mean, I've seen them over your shoulder and been very impressed with uh, just the ability to see what's going on. Yeah, it's it's like it's night and day. I'm actually using that uh, a lot to do teaching. Yeah. And being able to switch from. Okay, this is the code, and this is the uh, SQL that is being generated. Is uh, you know the low flicky abstractions? Yeah. Uh, any abstraction at some point, however nice, you need to see what's going on below. Yes. And the best way of actually explaining uh, uh, how an works is to do this switch. Okay, here's the code, here's the SQL. Here's the code, here's the SQL. You see, no magic. Yeah, there's no shortcuts here, really. Yeah. You end up with the same old queries you probably would have written yourself, except perhaps maybe not as efficient. I think it's uh, nothing more than just showing people the consequence of their actions. Yeah, I'm actually not quite sure about that, because I also see a lot of uh, handwritten code. That's worse. And yeah, it's much, much worse. At least with most uh, ORMs, you have someone who actually knows SQL right. writing the code. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the, the, the sort of standard generated SQL is not as good as the best hand-coded SQL, but it's better than an awful lot of hand-coded SQL. Yeah, but you can say the same about assembly code as well. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> and actually, I, th- I think that today you would find less than a thousand people that actually can write really good assembly to be able to actually uh, uh, work better than most uh, compilers anyway. I, I agree. It just, um, I recently had some uh, opportunity to learn about how, comp- how the CPU really works, not the things that it tells you how it works, but <laughs> and things like uh, understanding uh, the caching pipelines and uh, uh, 
prediction and stuff like that and just understanding how the compiler works, uh, how the CPU works, it's just crazy trying to figure figure uh, uh, what's going to happen from what used to be the simplest thing. It's just impossible. Yeah, so, it's just way more complex now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the way memory addressing works and, and processor queues and processes are a very complicated world. This is not the assembler that I wrote in, in, in the seventies, you know, this isn't your father's assembler. Yep. Not anymore. <laughs> especially when you're the father. <laughs> yeah. It's for, all right. I, I feel like I pulled this off on a digression here. This is not about domain specific languages, but it is certainly a, a cool set of tooling. Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, Boo's particulars, uh, strengths for writing DSLs. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about, um, well, we didn't really talk about some of the features of Boo. Okay. So it basically boils down to a whole lot of stuff that probably started accidentally. So the Boo, the Boo language is really, really focused on getting out of your way to be as low someone as possible. So if user uh, is logged in, is a valid uh, syntax in Boo. So, okay. if, uh, if what? If user is logged in. Lo- is logged in, yeah. Yeah, so this is valid syntax. So, um, and just scripting, think about uh, uh, the old uh, VB script. Mm-hmm. You can write Boo code that looks very much like this. Hmm. You don't need classes, you don't need main, you don't need anything. And um, the once you, once you combine that with very rich uh, keyword support, so most of the things are used with keyword, most of the things are used without a lot of uh, a parentheses and operators and stuff like that, then you get into a language that is very readable out of the box without doing anything else. Now you start combining that with the built-in features. So uh, with Boo, you can optionally call a method without any parentheses. So think about it like you can call execute a login operation. So right. where login operation okay. is a string and execute is a method call. But you can just literally write execute space string something and this is valid book code. So it doesn't look like code at all when you when you start making use of a lot of these features. Then you have things like um um method missing. So in Ruby, you have the notion of method missing. And in C-sharp 4, we have the dynamic and um, idynamic object or expander object. I don't remember how it's called right now. Uh, that allows you basically make a method call and at runtime intercept this method call and decide what to do. So this is another thing that Boo has for a very long time. Uh, so those are all the things that the compiler already does for you. And just by making use of those things, you can create very easy DSLs. But by just defining the convention which you you write the code, the result of this DSL is a standard assembly, which means that you can profile them, you can execute them in the debugger. So think about that. How often uh, uh, do you see a DSL where you can actually debug something? With Boo, you just get it for free using Visual Studio. Huh? Yeah. So think about that. You write some code. It it looks like standard English. When a user is logged in, is logged in and 
לוגי לוקיישן איז נוט אין U.S. אקטיבייט פרוד דיטקשן. This is something that you can write in good today without doing anything special. And this looks like English. And now you, you compile that and or you put it in a special directory based on how your application behaves. Uh, oh, wait, I think that I have a problem here. Let's just press F11 and it goes into the script. And you can see the variables. You can use all the bugger goodies that you're already familiar with. Um, finally, you have the ability to extend the compiler. And be it by adding new uh, uh, keywords, by changing the meaning of the built-in operation of the language, by uh, generating your own code through the uh, book compiler. So anyone who ever tried to do IL generation knows that it's horrible. At the, level, at the IL level, it's just very hard to work. Yeah, it's tough to read. Yeah, but at the book level... You, you basically, it's like working with Kodo. It's very, it's very similar because both of, the, both of them are doing very similar things. But the end result is not just some text that then you have to execute the compiler on. You just compile that directly into IL, which means that uh, using, the, using the book compiler, you're suddenly exposed to a lot of the uh, power in the CLR that you don't have in the, uh, when you're using a high-level language. Right. So... All of those together and means that you can sit down and, and start writing your syntax and move from, oh, this is what the syntax that I want to, to have to, oh, okay, all the tests are passing in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And the end result is executable, debuggable, profiled, and it doesn't, it's not some uh, external script that you have to execute and you have to pay the marshalling cost and maybe it's written in a a dynamic language that has a, a, hmm. a lower performance than a, your own code. This standard .NET code, it's running the same performance, the same, same, same up-domain. Uh, something that I tend to do very often is I have CPU cycles to burn in most cases. What I don't have time to do is do AO. So it's very uh, so something that uh, I tend to develop. And okay, let's define all the rules. Um, I spoke before about the, the quote generation program. They had uh, fifteen thousand rules in the end, and but executing all of them on a small set of data, all of which was in memory and probably on the uh, L two cache in the in the in the CPU, was meant that we could actually execute a whole bunch of them very very quickly. Without actually more quickly than it would take us to uh, uh, get to the overdue process data using the previous versions, because the CPU cycles were, were basically free, because we did no I/O. Right. Uh, so, and but, but th- th- that wasn't the main major point from uh, their perspective. The main point was that okay, now that I have all the rules written in the DSL. Well, I have access to the compiler. I have access to the way that uh, the code is written in a very deep, le- very deep level. That means that I can start doing things like, oh, let's see, let's see how much duplication do I have, or let's see how I can uh, start uh, analyzing patterns in the way that my words are written, so I can see, uh, oh, I can add a, a new feature to the language that would express this concept in a much better fashion. Or 
something that uh, they were shocked about, uh, we executed uh, some analysis to pull out all the... Think about it. Um, they, had a, they had the notion of a preferred customer. Right. And preferred customer get uh, free shipping and get uh, 2% off and all, all sorts of benefits for the preferred customer. But all of that was hidden away in a lot of small roles all over the place. So at some point, we just sat down and, okay, let's figure out what is preferred customer, and let's pull out everything that relates to preferred customer. So the code, the rules that they have were also data, and we can start uh, uh, giving them information about stuff that they were doing that they, they weren't aware that they were doing. Hmm. So I could execute a report, okay, here are the things that, here is what it means to be a preferred customer. Yeah. Right, and so now you can use that for business actions to actually find a way mm-hmm. to say, here's how we get more preferred customers or find activities that ultimately generate customers of more value. Yeah, the, what they actually used it for was to verify that what they said a preferred customer was and what the right. system, what their system executed for preferred customer was the same thing. Well, um, we're, we're just about running out of time, um, oh. but I think we would just like to... Ask people to to get your book. For what ten bucks, you can get the ebook. Uh, I don't know that the pricing. And unfortunately, well, I read that on your blog there. Uh, that depend. No, that depend on the time. I think that was some sort of a sale. If a I'm not mistaken, okay. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it's twenty five or thirty bucks for the ebook. Okay, but don't catch me with that. I'm All right, far well, away from the computer right now. Yeah, it's thirty. Check it out. DSLs and okay. Boo, and Raheen or Anini. Thanks. This is uh, this is cool. Yeah, I certainly think so. And leave it to you to simplify a complex thing. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.